Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Francis Dernley, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss the huge, mysterious explosion at a factory near Moscow, known for producing night vision devices for the Russian army, report on heavy battles raging in the east of Ukraine, and debate whether it is possible or even advisable to suspend Russia from the UN Security Council. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our team's reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 9th of August, one year and 166 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by our Associate Editor of Defence, Dominic Nichols, and former tank commander and regular on the podcast, Hamish de Breton-Gordon. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. There's been a very, very big explosion uh, at a factory just to the northeast, about 50 k's northeast of Moscow, so, so far, 45 people are reported injured in this explosion. This factory produces night vision devices, binoculars, and other precision optical equipment for the Russian military. Now, Russia's TASS news agency is reporting that emergency services are attributing the blast at the moment to a fire in a warehouse used for storing fireworks. This is the um, Zagorsk optical mechanical plant. There's footage on social media. You'll see it all over the place. There's a huge mushroom cloud. High-rise buildings nearby, windows blown out. There's no sign at all of fireworks cooking off and kind of whizzing off in all directions. So I don't, I'm not, I'm not buying that. Quite frankly, it looks like there's just been one very, very big bang, a huge mushroom cloud um, over the city. Russia's emergency situations ministry have said the explosion was due to human error. Nothing more on that. However, the plant did suffer another fire, mysterious fire in June last year with no attribution for that. So whether or not this is an act of sabotage or maybe one of these, um, maybe some of the, the drone attacks, the alleged Ukrainian drone attacks that we've seen recently, we do not know. Russian authorities denied that this blast was connected to another, the latest alleged Ukrainian drone attack earlier today. And on that, Moscow's mayor, Sergei Sobyanin, he wrote on Telegram, said two combat drones attempt to fly into the city was recorded. Both were shot down by air defence. Um, he said one one of the drones was shot down in the Domodedevo area on the southern outskirts of the city. The second one was uh, just west of the capital on the, the main, on the Minsk highway area. So that that's literally breaking as we... 
as we were coming on air today, but uh, there'll be more uh, more on that, no doubt. Separately, Ukraine says it has repelled assaults by Russian forces as heavy battles, they've described. Heavy battles continue in the east. They're describing 30 separate uh, engagements. This comes from a statement from the general staff, which said the defence forces of Ukraine continue to deter the advance of Russian troops in the Kupiansk and Liman directions. So that's about 100 k's east and um, Liman, about the same southeast of Kharkiv, up in the northeast of the country. The statement carries on. Russian occupiers conducted unsuccessful actions in the Sinkivka districts of Kharkiv. Sinkivka is just outside Kupiansk. Uh, and made unsuccessful attempts to restore the lost position in the, vill- in the vicinity of Klitschkiva, which is just south of Bakhmut. We know that the ground there, the high ground to the south, has been um, slowly, or Ukraine slowly been taking that back around Bakhmut. Where else? So separately, the Pentagon, US Pentagon has said that uh, President Biden has cleared F-16 training for Ukrainian pilots. This comes from Pentagon Deputy Press Secretary Sabrina Singh. She said yesterday that US President Joe Biden has given the green light. Uh, so now we're just going to wait. I mean, I think the Netherlands have also said that they would conduct, uh, they would they would run the training when, they, when the light was given. Belarusian leader Alexander Lukashenko, he's been accused of handing over control of his country to Putin. Uh, in a bid to uh, to maintain his regime. So this was a joint statement from the foreign ministers of Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania and Poland. They said Mr. Lukashenko was, quote, an accomplice and direct supporter of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Russian troops, obviously, one of the axes was from the north, was, was uh, came through Belarus and the training ongo- ongoing in that country. Now, Alongside allowing Moscow to keep missiles on uh, Belarusian soil, Lukashenko's government is said to have hosted thousands of uh, the Wagner mercenaries, uh, although there is suggestion that they're being kicked out of the country today and being sent back to Rostov-on-Don, Prigozhin-on-Don, the, the city they took over in the, on the June the 4th mutiny, and another couple of cities around there, but that's, um, that's unconfirmed. They're also, Wagner has been accused of committing war crimes by deporting Ukrainian children. So this statement by the foreign minister continued. It said, while Minsk, while the Minsk regime cares only about its own survival, it continues to erode Belarus's statehood illegitimately and illegally in contravention to the Belarusian people's will ceding its sovereignty to Russia. And just finally, the German delegation in NATO says it has offered to extend the stationing of German Patriot air defence systems in Poland till the end of this year. So they've been there since January, and that is a big plug-in as part of NATO's integrated air defence network covering the eastern flank of NATO. And obviously there has been, I mean, it's there to protect NATO, but of course it's, uh, it's taking a great interest in anything that, uh, that comes out of, out of Ukraine as well. Well, thanks very much, Dom. You were speaking about Belarus a moment ago, and among the political and diplomatic updates today is the news that Poland will send 2,000 troops to the Belarus border to support the border guard. I think that speaks to just how seriously they take Russian activities in that country and concerns that the Wagner mercenaries might seek to do something to sow further chaos in Central and Eastern Europe. In a sense, of course, they already have. Their very presence in that country is a distraction from Ukraine, as well as causing Kyiv problems, as you say. As previously discussed, they are forced to station more troops in its northern quadrants in in case Belarus were used as another launch pad for further incursions, as they did during the full-scale invasion. Now, it is worth adding here that Mr. Lukashenko has previously claimed that he's struggling to restrain 
the mercenaries from attacking its Western neighbour. An in- incredible admission, but no doubt just designed to sow further discord in the region. But nevertheless, it just speaks to quite how far Lukashenko is willing to go in order to parrot the uh, Russian line, in a sense. In other news, Ukrainian special services have said that they foiled an attempt by Russian hackers to penetrate the Ukrainian armed forces combat information system. I'll quote, as a result of complex measures, SBU exposed and blocked the illegal actions of Russian hackers who tried to penetrate Ukrainian military networks and organise intelligence gathering. That's what the SBU said in a statement on Telegram. Hackers tried to apparently gain access to sensitive information on the actions of the Ukrainian armed forces, the location and movement of the defence forces and their technical support, the statement read. Responsibility for the attack lay apparently with a sophisticated Russian hacking team known within the cybersecurity research community as Sandworm. Uh, cyber specialists in the, C- in the SBU found that the hackers planned to use Ukrainian military tablets to spread viruses in the battle system. Now, the reason I'm mentioning this in the political section is because a major story that we at The Telegraph are reporting this morning is that Russia is suspected to have been behind a cyber attack which exposed the data of up to 40 million British voters, raising fears that it was an attempt to undermine the democratic process here. The Telegraph can reveal that the UK intelligence services have found evidence that links the hack of the Electoral Commission directly to the Russians. It's also understood that signs of ransomware, a form of software, of course, that can block users from accessing files, were found prompting concerns that the body that oversees UK elections could have been locked out of voter lists ahead of some kind of future ballot. As I say, two former intelligence chiefs have said that Russia would be the top of their list of suspects, given the past meddling by the Kremlin in recent Western elections. One former GCHQ director said that the Kremlin would be the top of his list, and Sir Richard Dearlove, the former head of MI6, has told The Telegraph... Russia will be the top of my list of suspects by a mile. It is worth remembering that data is a valuable commodity in the world today. Here in Britain, certain seats, electoral seats, change hands here by just a few hundred votes. And electoral fraud is always a danger, especially with the expansion of postal voting in recent years. Who knows what Russia were up to? Was it an attempt just to merely cause issues in the defensive infrastructure of the UK? Or was it designed to get a better picture of the electoral makeup of certain seats in the hope that they might be able to swing a certain vote or two? It's possible. And that's, of course, what the concern is this morning. Finally, a story from Russia that I wanted to end my section on. The state has released a new textbook for students ahead of the start of the new school year that defends explicitly Putin's rationale for invading Ukraine. This textbook will be rolled out to all schools before the 1st of September, the education minister has said. At a press conference in Moscow yesterday, Russia's education minister said the material was aimed at conveying the aims of the Ukraine war, which he said were demilitarization and denazification. He vowed to update the textbooks again after the end of the war, as soon as we win, adding, we are already winning the information war. Quite a claim that. Uh, But the special military operation will end and it will end with our victory. And of course, we will supplement the 
military and history textbooks. That's what he's been quoted from the IRA as saying. Reminds me of that quote from 1984, is it, who, he who controls the past controls the future, who controls the present controls the past. Uh, I'm very grateful that here in Britain we learn history in a way, not just that's what took place, but how to analyse the past, how to question narratives and assumptions, sources and stories. Yet that approach to history, it just isn't shared everywhere. And I would argue that we're seeing the consequences of that lack of critical thinking playing out in Russia on a daily basis. But that's where we are in the political realm this morning. Hamish, can I turn to you now? You were listening to our interview with Frederick Kagan of the Institute for the Study of War yesterday, an episode that many listeners are calling one of the best we've ever done. So thank you very much for those who've written into us. What did you make of his comments, first of all? Yeah, I thought Frederick said a lot of really interesting and thoughtful comments yesterday. Uh, and I agree. I think it, it was certainly one of, one of the best that, that I've heard. I, I was particularly taken by his comments on the escalation piece. What is concerning an awful lot of people around the world who are not actually in Ukraine doing the fighting is the potential for Russia to escalate, to draw in uh, European countries to go nuclear, which we've discussed on on many times. And, you know, I absolutely agree with Frederick. You know, a a lot of this is absolutely, you know, hollow and without foundation. There is not really a lot that Putin can escalate. His military accelerator is fully down. Everything is being used. This is a total war in sort of military taxonomy that Russia is fighting. Uh, And there is little else that, that he can throw at it. On the nuclear side... I don't want to rehearse or, or go regurgitate the arguments that Frederick was talking about and I've talked about, but I, I think it is just absolutely not an issue at all. I don't think he can use his tactical nuclear weapons. And if he did, you know, this this view, and it's, it is in Russian doctrine, and I did write a paper on it, which I'm quite happy to post if people want the big details. Russian doctrine does sort of allow the use of battlefield nuclear weapons you know, if the Russian state is existentially threatened, and you are, could argue that Crimea, et cetera, et cetera, is what Putin views as now the Russian state. But the idea you can use one nuclear weapon as a as some way to distract or prevent um, the West getting more involved, to me, is absolutely ridiculous. You know, one nuclear weapon is the same as several. And I think Putin knows that. So I, on the escalation side... And when we link it to the delay or, or the, the not rapid uh, provision of key military capability, which, again, Frederick was, and you guys were discussing yesterday, for a whole host of reasons, I've, in previous pieces I've written for The Telegraph about timid Western leaders because of the worry of escalation, actually, it's making it more likely. So, you know, had Ukraine had tanks, eight, 10 months ago, had they now had F-16s flying over uh, Ukraine, we'd be in a very different position. And, and it sort of um, leads into, into sort of what, one, of, what, one of the next points. I know that you discussed earlier on in the week the attack on Russian naval shipping, and we had the attack on the motor transport or military transport tanker SIG uh, earlier this week. 
Now, we've discussed an awful lot about air superiority, and it is great frustration that Russia has that, so they can they can operate um, sort of not not unhindered, but they can operate in the skies, and it makes the ground operations, the land operations by the Ukraine counteroffensive so much more difficult. It restricts their manoeuvre. In a similar fashion, until this week, Russia had complete freedom of movement uh, and controlled the naval space in, in the Black Sea, except for you know, 12 miles around the coast of Ukraine. And I think what the attack on the Russian transport ship and also the attack on MT SIG has really clouded that issue. Russia no longer has naval superiority. And when you think the MT SIG was, is also the ship that supplies Russian troops in Syria, all their ammunition and fuel, and they still have a force there, they, they are still playing a role. If they suddenly go hungry and run out of stuff in Syria, uh, Putin's got another problem. So I, I think that the that as Russia has not got full control of the maritime element in the Black Sea, that is pretty significant, quite apart from the fact that Ukraine seems to be able to put half a tonne of high explosives in a maritime drone, probably control it over 500 miles of sea and hit a relatively small target is phenomenal. And I expect, you know, those Russian sailors are, are not quite so keen um, to put to sea. The other bit, picking up from a few things from yesterday, is the double tap that you described in detail. And to me, that, that again was straight out of the Syrian playbook. We're going to talk about the UN in, the, in a minute. But my great frustration in all the time I was in Syria working with um, medical charities was that um, under the Geneva Convention, hospitals, mosques, synagogues, churches are protected areas. And so are some key sort of industrial sites that if there is an explosion there, they can create massive civilian casualties, a bit like nuclear power stations, Chernobyl, and we talk about Zaporizhia. But in Syria, when we created a new hospital, we gave the UN the, the exact grid references, coordinates of those hospitals, in order that the Syrian regime would not bomb them. Actually, what the Syrians and Russians did, then used that information as targeting information, and literally would pump those numbers into their targeting computers and in most cases, the next day, we got a precision missile through the window of a hospital and blew it up. And that really, uh, and, and what I was saying about the double tap, the other thing was the double tap. We saw it so often in Syria. And it's no, no secret that I, I helped work with the White Helmets, who were the, the emergency services in Syria. But as soon as the White Helmets got in there to try and rescue people, we then got another missile through there. And, and again, that that is a war crime against it, it, it's a war crime to blow up hospitals anyway but then to attack the ambulance staff the medics and the doctors who are trying to save people is double so those are the things that i picked up from yesterday and i thought you know really really sound stuff that that frederick was talking about well thanks very much for that hamish you also wrote i think it's fair to say an impassioned piece yesterday condemning the lack of formal calls for russia to be expelled uh, from its permanent seat on the UN Security Council, which is, I know, a subject 
many listeners feel equally frustrated about. Now, to provide a little bit of context on this issue for listeners who may not be familiar with the intricacies of this, the Security Council comprises 15 members. Ten rotating non-permanent countries are elected by the UN General Assembly to do a two-year term on the Security Council. Five members formerly the USSR, now Russia, the Republic of China, now the People's Republic of China, the US, UK and France have the status of permanent members and so have a veto on any vote before the council. Now, there is no mechanism to remove a permanent member of the Security Council written into the UN Charter. The word permanent was supposed to mean just that. But there is a process to remove a country from the UN. That would require a vote of the UN General Assembly based on a recommendation of the Security Council. This has never been done. And given that Russia, of course, has a veto on the Security Council, the Council cannot recommend Russia's removal without Russia's agreement, which won't happen. Nevertheless, Ukraine asks whether Russia even has the right to be on the Security Council. The UN Charter says that the USSR, not Russia, is the permanent member. Therefore, they argue it should never have just passed over that Russia has its seat effectively illegally. But as Andrew McLeod of King's College London has pointed out, there is another country that perhaps doesn't want to reopen the question, and that is actually the UK. This is because if Scotland were ever to have another independence referendum and leave the Union, England and Wales will, like Russia, seek to be the continuing state, not the successor state to the UK, in order to retain the Security Council seat. So he argues, and I think quite persuasively, that given that three permanent members of the Security Council, Russia, China, which also went through a similar process of evolution, and the UK, all likely benefit from the continuing state argument, and therefore Ukraine's hopes of removing Russia from the Security Council appear doomed from the get-go. Now, all that said, Hamish, in your piece, you acknowledge that this is a complicated subject, but your point is that the question of Russia's permanent seat should at least be asked and considered that this should be a central discussion topic. You say, and I'm quoting from you here, what kind of message does it send to the world that Russia is still there, that its membership is seemingly beyond even being questioned? To me, it says that you'll be given for anything as long as one is powerful enough. What a dangerous signal to send in what is set to be a tumultuous century. Unpunished evil grows. Perhaps you can expand on this and some other points you make in the article. I mean, what a very tricky area. And I I absolutely acknowledge one is treading on thin ice here and and a lot of eggshells, you know, and and a a lot of sacred ideas. I don't think I've ever written a piece that has had such a reaction or even, you know, tweeted, you know, 100,000 views, a a thousand retweets, et cetera, et cetera, with virtually every view I've also had off the record private discussions with with some ministers who you know privately agree but but acknowledge everything you've said uh, how difficult this is i mean i i have been a un peacekeeper twice deployed on operations keeping the peace so i you know i have put the blueberry on i have fought or protected you know the great organization but let's look at it it is little change since its inauguration and that seems to me barking the situation. One of the things we always look at in the military when we're planning or doing an operation and we make a plan, 
we're always reviewing it. We call it question four, where we say, has the situation changed from the plan that we originally made? And if it has changed, do we need to adjust our plan accordingly to be successful? Has the world situation changed since the UN was set up, you know, 70 plus years ago? Well, crikey, yes, I think it has just a little bit. So some of those rules that were in place to begin with, as you say, you can't remove somebody from the from being a permanent member. I, I think it is timely to look at it. And it, it is incredibly frustrating. I've mentioned my gripe with the UN in Syria. But let's not forget as well, in Syria, Russia attacked a UN convoy bringing aid into Aleppo um, back in 2016, 2017, I think it was. There was no punishment for that. That has been proven that that happened. We then look to, you know, what could the UN be doing now? Myself and many others have called for demilitarized zones around the Zaporizhia nuclear power station. Now, that's something they could really tangible do, which would make a phenomenal difference uh, and pr- provide you know, a lot of mental security to people, particularly in Europe. Similarly, on the grain piece, we hear a lot of determined speech coming out of that ivory tower in New York, but action is virtually non-existent. So there, there, there is a frustration. And I suppose in, in a sort of way, some of the frustration may have been coming out of the piece I've written here. I get the general feeling that it is time for review. Now, sure, it's, it's all we've got. And we've got to make the best of it. But the fact that one country, uh, one pariah, uh, one terror state like Russia can really hold the rest of the world to ransom, to me, seems ridiculous. I think also the reaction one has seen from Russia and its allies to this, it seems that Putin is more concerned from le- losing his permanent seat on the UN Security Council than virtually anything else. And to me, that gives an opportunity. That is a real opportunity. And, and we're not saying kick, I, I am not saying kick Russia out of the UN. I'm saying suspend them. Because as I say in the article, they are the great sea anchor that is dragging the UN down at the moment. People are, yeah, maybe it's people like me, but I think generally people are losing faith in the UN. Why are we investing so much resources in this when when it is having little impact? And I think setting an example of suspending Russia um, is something tangible that we could do. I think, I suppose, my final piece to this, um, my second final piece to this is of course the other pariah state isis we haven't invited them into the un uh, and i know what one will get an awful lot of comment on that but i suppose my final piece would be slightly to to temper it It is you know a a much better person than me said keep your friends close but your enemies closer well thank you very much for that hamish dom you've been also very vocally frustrated about the UN in recent months. Do you want to chime in on this? Yeah, again, I won't, I won't rehearse the, the arguments here. And I know when I've offered opinions on the UN, people have said to me, well, you know, that's not how the UN isn't a thing. It's, it's, it's only there by the, the decisions of the collective will of the member states. And I do get that. But it's not entirely, that's not the end of the story because I accept that the UN is made up of, of member states. But if you're if you're saying that the UN in and of itself doesn't have any clout, then what's the point of the massive great building in New York and all the other bits and bobs around the world? Because if it's just sovereign states, member states, 
that are perfectly able to have bilateral and other relationships with other states, then you're kind of talking yourself out of a purpose for the UN. So I do think there is there is a role to play here. And I just wonder if the power of the General Assembly, so so the other, the, the, the what is it, 189 members in the General Assembly, the rest of the world, basically, I wonder what the what the power would be there if this idea was floated by someone very senior, like the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, perhaps, um, that is it time for a change? We see Russia courting these votes across uh, many parts of the world, particularly Africa. Uh, there's, there's, they do it partly for for economics, but also it's to to get the the diplomatic heft. Uh, you know, see old Sergei Lavrov going around the around the world courting all these uh, all these different countries, and it's I think it's because Putin does see a threat there from the General Assembly, if not the Security Council itself. And so I think that's worth testing. I've said before that you know, the UN was set up in the rubble, after the rubble of the Second World War, for one purpose only, and that was to stop a Third World War. And it did it brilliantly. It did its job brilliantly. It was not a Third World War, but the whole thing was set up to stop activity rather than to to enable activity, or enabling activity has always been very, very difficult. And the price of having this, this huge body that stops stuff happening is that you do get the occasional um, kind of international hernia of a, of a Serbia, of a Rwanda, where the world sort of is seemingly unable to to deal with some of these egregious examples of humanity, but I just think we're. I think it is time now to say, well, well, how how do you move it on? If you were trying to build it today, and you said, well, here's here's the UN General Assembly, Security Council, permanent members of the Security Council, and one of those permanent members is allowed to to wage war on on another member, seemingly with without um, without restraint and without uh, any kind of pushback. I mean, it just doesn't make sense. You wouldn't build it that way today. So so change it. I mean, it's not beyond the wit of man to change these things. Get the minds together and we can we can do amazing things. So I, I wonder if there's an opportunity to be tested through the body, the floor of the General Assembly to then see if there's enough diplomatic heft there that could impact and change the behavior of the Security Council or perhaps maybe rewrite the whole rules of the club. I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon, but I would very much like to see somebody try. It's a very interesting question, this, isn't it? Because it's all really about the processes. And it appears that so many people echo our frustrations, but say that the processes are not there to see the kind of changes that perhaps would allow for some of these questions to even be posed on the floor of the UN. I mean, that's the point, right? Is that it could just be vetoed as, as discussion points almost. I want to quote also from a listener who who wrote into us and, and put forward a very interesting defence of the UN, despite all of the frustrations. And I'll read from that now. Instead, I'd like to put forward the concept that the UN, regardless of any failings, is instrumental in pushing Western ideas, concepts, philosophy, culture and prerogatives. By its very nature, it requires voting. It requires bringing up and making an argument about a problem. It requires that the government and the people that they either represent or control make a case or argument for anything that's done. Furthermore, the very core of an institution that is unable to do any hard power requires that it do soft power. Things like human rights, equality and the assumption that a government should be watching out for their constituents. In addition, it allows another level of argument that often short circuits the need that the governments feel to take kinetic action. Even if all it ever does is that, and some propaganda or statements declaring how something isn't good or have something as a problem, the amount of money we've spent is still well spent. I agree on the lack of action from the UN on this issue, which I believe is something that needs to be addressed. But I consider that of secondary order of importance over what I've already mentioned. 
In this respect, to offer another example, the internet also has the first order effect of pushing Western ideologies, culture and philosophical underpinnings of a liberal society. All the other effects are, in my opinion, secondary, despite how important they also are. I think that's a very interesting way of thinking about this. And it comes back to that thesis we've talked about before, which is that the medium is the message, that what matters actually sometimes is less the detail, but the very framing in which these issues are placed, because that is actually the concept that's really being discussed or not, as the case may be. I wonder, Dom, if you have any reaction that or Hamish to to the points put forward by the listener there. Yeah, just one final thing on this from what you've just read out there, Francis. Let's not forget that Putin is indicted as a war criminal at the International Criminal Court. Uh, That was for allegedly smuggling children out of Ukraine. And there are a whole host of other potential war crimes um, building up that Putin will have to answer at some stage. You know, had the UN been up and running before the Second World War, would Hitler's Nazi Germany be allowed to join that club? That is why I think the situation's changed. And that is why I think we need to review it. Well, thank you very much both. No doubt we'll get a lot of correspondence from listeners on this issue and we'll be discussing it again because it is one of the core issues that this war has, I think, brought into the public consciousness. It is that time where we do our final thoughts. Uh, Dom, can I go to you first? Yeah, so just on this, um, Daniel Finkelstein has has released a book uh, recently, the last couple of months, a really interesting book called Hitler, Stalin, Mum and Dad. It's a personal memoir. His his parents were, because of the the time they were uh, and the accident of of history they were subjected to persecution both by stalin and hitler but in the book he he talks about how he doesn't sort of express it as such but he says you know one of the one of the best things that happened after the second world war was that was that the international community didn't turn its back on germany and actually piled in and and invested and tried to get it and successfully got it to stand on its on its feet so that it didn't then retrench back into extremism and Daniel Finkelstein makes the point that actually one of the worst things happened was that Russia was on the or the Soviet Union then was on the victorious side so didn't go through this this um the soul searching that Germany and, and Japan did to, to to a great extent where they had to confront these demons and, and get them all out and expunge these these ideas um and he and he said that unless and until that happens these this is going to rumble on so this is the moment where yeah, R- Russia needs to lose this war, and and as as Frederick was saying yesterday, it needs to be very obvious that they've lost, and Putin personally lost everything that he's tried to build to stop other people trying it again in the future. So, yeah, if you want a sort of a, a more a more considered extrapolation of some of these ideas, go and have a look at Daniel Finkelstein's book. I thought it was excellent. Thanks very much, Dom. And I I echo that analysis, although I would say that usually if one looks at history, you have to in order for that kind of collective reckoning to to have a cultural resonance amongst ordinary people in that country, you had to have occupation. And of course, that's what Germany underwent. And Russia has never really endured that. And as a consequence, it hasn't seen that profound transformational change that Germany did or Japan did, say, in the Second World War or after the Second World War. But Hamish, you've got the the very final words today. My final word is, is about stalemate. There's an awful lot of discussion about potential stalemate in Ukraine at the moment, which which I just I, I don't buy at all. I think um, people need to consider what we call the deep battle that's going on at the moment, the attacks on 
on shipping, the attacks on the logistics, big explosions in Moscow, drone attacks on Moscow, reporting in Russia of the massive casualties and Russian parents at last realising how desperate things are. So discussions are stalemate. The ebbs and flows of battle are are happening at the moment. Uh, And I am still, and I think people should still be confident that Ukraine will prevail. But to make sure that that happens in a timely fashion, Western leaders must make sure that flow of weaponry and logistics keeps going so that the Ukraine guns can keep firing and come to the position where Russia is out of Ukraine, we can have some sort of peace and uh, we, we can get on with back to the way things sort of were. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do please refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it really does help others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. You can also contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was today produced by Elliot Lampett. And our executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.